If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jellicoe was faced with what probably was the most important decision by any British officer in the First World War. Because, as Churchill said, Jellicoe was the only man who could lose the war in an afternoon, and he could have done. That was Admiral Lord West talking about the 1916 Battle of Jutland. Chemistry sets become very fashionable among children at this time, and they are full of all sorts of extraordinary Uh, ingredients that you wouldn't dare to put into the hands of children today. And that was Susanna Lipscomb discussing her new BBC TV documentary on 20th century domestic dangers. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of May 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A hundred years ago this month, Germany and Britain fought the most important naval battle of the First World War. Taking place in the North Sea on the 31st of May 1916, The Battle of Jutland saw heavy casualties on both sides and ended seemingly inconclusively. However, Admiral Lord West, who presents a new BBC Radio 4 documentary on Jutland, believes that this was in fact the moment that decided the outcome of the First World War. I paid a visit to Lord West at the House of Lords recently to find out more, and I began by asking him to summarise the naval situation prior to the battle. The British Navy, which was uh, seen by the British public and seen globally as the greatest navy in the world, was resting on its laurels slightly from post uh, the Battle of Trafalgar, 100 years of the Pax Britannica. It had been shaken up and reforged by a man called Admiral Jackie Fisher. Luckily, he'd withdrawn lots of ships from the colonies all around the world. He'd introduced a completely new class of battleship, the Dreadnought, which revolutionised battleships. It gave them one type of main armament. It meant they could have direct control of the firing. There were turbines rather than reciprocating engines, which made them much smoother. They could go faster, were more reliable. Um, Of course, it took out the the massive superiority we had in numbers in one stroke. So we were in an even race by that time. And the reason we were doing this is for the first time for 100 years, a nation was really beginning to challenge us, and that was Germany. And Germany started building up the high seas fleet as they called it basically the kaiser who of course was a grand son of queen victoria loved the british navy he'd always come over and seen it 
thought they ought to have one. And, uh, and Tirpitz, who was the uh, architect of the German Navy, felt they should have a navy to stop the British putting any leverage on the Germans um, because the Germans wanted a free hand to do whatever they wanted on the continent and things. They also wanted to start getting a few colonies. What the Germans didn't seem to understand was that building uh, a fleet of battleships and, in a sense, challenging the uh, Royal Navy was something that Britain um, couldn't allow to happen because... For Germany, the battle fleet was something that was nice to have. For Britain, uh, a battleship and mastery of the waves was absolutely crucial to hold our empire together and to survive as a nation because we imported such a vast amount of all the things needed by our population. So, so prior to 1916, how much of the First World War had been fought at sea? Well, when the war started, the Navy had to decide what is our war plan. And historically, they'd always done a close blockade. Um, and that clearly was no longer appropriate because as well as new battleships, there were mines, much better than ever before. There were torpedoes, uh, which really no one had seen how they would operate in war. Um, submarines had become something to be reckoned with. And again, they had not been seen in war. There were zeppelins and aircraft. So suddenly you had surveillance from the air. And it was quite clear that a close blockade wouldn't work. So the Navy said, right, we'll do a distant blockade. And that was the first thing. The next thing, of course, was to ensure that there could be no invasion of our islands. And as long as our fleet was there, uh, the size it was, that just couldn't happen. Um, the next thing after that was to ensure we got our expeditionary force to France without losing any troops and to ensure that was supplied and injured were brought back and, and ammunition and more soldiers. And actually throughout the entire war, not a single soldier was lost on that route between the short route between uh, England and France, which is quite amazing achievement. And then also to transfer all of the colonial troops, people from India, from Australia, Canada, and then later in the war, of course, American, to the European theatre to fight and do that safely. There were some sinkings of various ships there in the Mediterranean. So it was to do that as well. And then finally to uh, wipe out any German commerce raiders or German ships around the world so they could concentrate on, on Europe. And Pretty quickly, at the beginning of the war in 1914, the only large German squadron, which was their China squadron, the Asiatic squadron, um, sailed, from, uh, sailed from China across the Pacific to Chile, because Chile was sympathetic to them. And there it met um, Sir Percy, Percy Craddock, an admiral, um, and there was a Battle of Coronel, which was a, quite a shock to the British. It was the first time the British had lost a sea battle for 100 years or so, more than 100 years. Basically, Percy Craddock and his cruiser and the other cruiser were both sunk, with losing everyone on board them, a lot of reservists. But revenge was very swift. And Fisher sailed two of the new battle cruisers, uh, Invincible and Indefatigable, from the UK. They raced down the South Atlantic in secret, got to the Falkland Islands. The Germans had decided that they were actually going to go to the Falklands, destroy the radio station, the coaling station. It was von Spey was the German admiral. And he was horrified as he came over the horizon and saw the Falklands to see the tripods of what clearly were British capital ships. He then started to run for it. But of course, the battle cruisers were very fast. And the British squadron with the battle cruisers and some other cruisers chased the Germans, destroyed all of them apart from one little light cruiser which escaped. So there was revenge for that. And then over the next couple of years, around the world, we wiped out all of their armed merchant cruisers and other warships that were out, there were things like the Emden and things like that. They were all slowly wiped out, and we were able to concentrate on, on European waters. The Germans in the North Sea, which is going to be the main theatre of operations, 
they knew that they couldn't really take on the Grand Fleet one for one because it was too big. And their plan was, let's try and take a little bit of the Grand Fleet, destroy it, and then we'll get parity of numbers, then we can fight them. And so to draw out the British at the end of 1914 and then in 1915 as well, they bombarded East Coast towns like Scarborough and Whitby, most of which were undefended. It was a, a violation of the rules of war and, and really upset and annoyed people. Um, and because of the first raids in 1914, the Grand Fleet was split and the battle cruisers were put down in Recife, which was a new harbour being built. The main Grand Fleet stayed up in Scarpa. So already the Germans had actually split the Grand Fleet. And in 1915, the battle cruisers were sailed because the Germans were doing a bombardment and they met up at the Battle of Dogger Bank, where uh, the Blucher, which was a, an old German cruiser, was sunk, and where their battle cruisers, the German battle cruisers, took a bit of punishment. But because of bad signalling and a number of other issues, the British did not gain a complete annihilating victory, but it gave the Germans quite a fright. But they still had this feeling that what they had to do was draw the British out and do this. What they didn't realise is the, the jewel in the British crown, which was our intelligence capability, Room 40 in the Admiralty, our ability to intercept German wireless traffic, to break their codes, partly because we'd got code books from the cruiser Magdeburg that had been captured by the Russians in the Baltic, and also because one of our fishing boats in the North Sea dragged up in its nets a mass of these log books and cipher books. It was called, the, I think, the, the Hall of the Treasure of Fishes or something. And that enabled us throughout the war to crack all these codes and to give advanced warning to uh, the Grand Fleet when the Germans were sailing. And the Germans got quite paranoid about this and they thought it was fishing boats in the North Sea giving information and they started fish sinking fishing boats. But it was that ability that enabled the battlecruiser to get down for Dogger Bank. And on the great day of the race, of course, in 1916, Scheer had recently taken over as in command of the High Seas Fleet, because his predecessor, they felt, was too pusillanimous. He wanted to get out there and do something. Hippo was commanding the German battlecruisers, and they had a plan, yet again, to go off, do a bombardment of the coast, draw out uh, Beatty and the battlecruisers, and maybe a part of the Grand Fleet, and destroy that piecemeal, and then there'd be more of a balance. Of course, they sailed, and even before they sailed, because of the rise in wireless traffic, Room 40 knew and had sent a warning to Jellicoe, Jellicoe sailed the Grand Fleet and had a rendezvous point just off the Jutland Peninsula where he was going to meet up with Beatty. Um, Beatty sailed from Recife um, on a more southerly track, um, doing a sweep round to come and join up. And on the 31st of May in the afternoon, one of his cruisers spotted um, a merchant ship that was letting off steam. It was a Danish merchant ship. As it went closer to it, it saw a couple of German destroyers, a sort of little desultory fight started, and that's when it became clear that the, that the battle cruisers were in sight, and, and Goodenough, who was the senior British officer, sent the signal that he had the enemy fleet in sight to the southeast. BC went charging down there, and that, that phase of the battle was known the run to the south, because the Germans turned and ran away, because they wanted to draw BT into the main fleet. There was some very bad tactical handling. Um, Beatty did not open fire when he had the range advantage, which he had. He didn't signal to part of his force, which was the 5th Battle Squadron. This was uh, the Super Dreadnoughts, the most powerful ships at sea in the world, the most powerful ships at, in the Battle of Jutland. He didn't signal to them, so there was a big separation. They weren't working together. 
He didn't concentrate the fire on each individual ship, so one of the German ships wasn't getting engaged. Very dangerous, that, because their fire becomes much more accurate. In the British ships, there were issues that later we became much more aware of, because to get the high rate of fire, they were storing cordite and things very badly, instead of it being stored behind flash-proof doors. And this almost proved the undoing of Lion, which got hit on Q turret, um, but uh, Major Harvey Royal Marines, in his dying breath, said flood the magazine, flooded the magazine so the Lion didn't explode. The Indefatigable, one more of his battle cruisers, was then hit by a number of shells. She wasn't so lucky. There was a huge explosion and she sank uh, with the loss of really most of the most of the men on board. She was initially hit on a turret um, and out of 1,019 officers men only two survived. The next ship of his to be sunk was the Queen Mary which again was hit and there's a very famous picture of her with this towering column this towering column of smoke, um, great explosion, and all but nine of her 1,275 men were lost. These terrible losses in such, just a matter of a minute or so. Beattie famously said at this stage, there's something wrong with our bloody ships today. And the apocryphal story is he said, alter two points to port, which is close to the enemy. But in fact, there's no record. You can't mm -hmm. find that anywhere. By then, the battles, the fifth battle squadron was beginning to get into the fight. And so the Germans were taking more punishment. But of course, at that moment, suddenly, there was the German high seas fleet hoving into view. And Scheer must have thought, fantastic, this is it, I've achieved it, I've got a part of their fleet, we're now going to be able to wipe those out, because he had no idea the Grand Fleet was at sea. Beattie turned immediately and started running away, didn't tell the 5th Battle Squadron, which steamed past him going the opposite direction, and then realised and turned round. But luckily they were such sturdy ships that on the run north, although they were getting hit quite a lot, um, they managed to handle this fire. Meanwhile, Jellicoe, who was steaming along with his uh, battleships, had just become aware that the German high seas fleet was at sea. And he was running south and he needed to make a decision. He needed to know exactly where they were, how to deploy his ships, because you steam along in a cruising formation. And in the cruising formation, you're in columns of, 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 of four ships. And he was in a number of columns. And he needed to deploy in one battle line so that all the guns could come to bear. And he could deploy either on the starboard wing or the port wing. And he only had a matter of minutes to make this decision based on very scant intelligence. You know, if you can imagine this, very misty and murky the North Sea always is. Not very sure of their own position because there was no way, there was no GPS or anything like that. Their speed was very uncertain because the logs weren't that accurate. He was getting fragmentary reports of the enemy. He knew the battle fleet, the ISIS fleet was there. He didn't know exactly where. Anyway, he made the decision to deploy on the port wing, and that was absolutely the right decision. So Jellicoe was faced with what probably was the most important decision by any British officer in the First World War. Because, as Churchill said, Jellicoe was the only man who could lose the war in an afternoon, and he could have done he could have lost the war in an afternoon if the Germans had won. And he made the right decision deploying on the port wing. He made the signal, equal speed, Charlie London. Famous signal. And his formation all deployed into a battle line. And just in time, because there he was deployed in this great line of dreadnoughts against the eastern horizon, which was getting very dark and misty because the sun was getting low. And uh, Scheer and Hipper and all the other ships steamed out into this and to the horror, the horror of Shear and Hipper, suddenly the whole horizon was a mass of flashing guns, which was the Grand Fleet, and they were in a real danger of being wiped out. Real danger of being wiped out. 
Shear executed the turn away together, something that was in their signal books, not ours. Each ship just turns 180 degrees and steams away. So suddenly they'd gone. Jellicoe kept steaming south, keep between him and the Germans and their ports. Shear and Hipper turned again, and Shear ran back into him again and again. Jellicoe crossed their T again. His gunfire was very accurate, hitting these ships. Shear almost sacrificed his uh, battle crews. He told Hipper to do this charge at them. He again turned away completely and did a mass attack with destroyers and cruisers firing torpedoes. And it's at that stage that some people say, well, was Jellicoe not really a Nelson? A Nelson would probably have turned towards to comb these tracks. Jellicoe turned away, which is safer, um, and lost no ships. If he had turned to war, he might have lost a couple of ships. But if he had turned towards, it would have been a pell-mell battle and he would have destroyed the German fleet, there's no doubt about it. But he had this great weight on his shoulders that he could lose the war in an afternoon, so it's a very difficult, very difficult one. Having turned away, the Germans then, it was now by this time getting really dark, Jellicoe decided that he'd stay between the Germans and their home port. He didn't want to do night fighting because the Brits were not good at that, the Germans were better at it. And he thought that Hipper and Scheer would stay out and there'd be another fight the next morning, but of course they were desperate, desperate to get away. Although they claimed that they had a tactical victory, they were desperate to get away. I mean, they'd almost been annihilated if they hadn't turned away. And they edged round the stern of Jellicoe's forces in the night. There were a lot of very fierce but inconclusive little actions. Some ships that saw things didn't take action. It was a bit messy. And, of course, Scheer got away with his ships. Very heavily damaged, some of his battle cruisers. On paper, it looked you know, very straightforward that, uh, that in, in numbers of ships lost, number of men lost, the Germans had won that. But there's no doubt whatsoever, the next morning, the British fleet was at sea, controlling the North Sea. The Germans had gone into harbour. And as an American commentator said, the prisoner had assaulted his jailer, but he was still in jail. In simplistic terms, the Germans, who had 99 strong fleet, 99 ships, many of them dreadnoughts, sank 113,000 tonnes of British ships, while 151 strong British fleet, 151, you know, it's, it's, that's 50% larger, sank 62,000 tonnes of German ships. The British lost just over 6,000 men, the Germans 2,500. And the Germans, of course, claimed straight away, this is a fantastic victory, it was celebrated by the extreme right in Germany after the First World War, through between. But the reality, in fact, was, was extremely different from that. The prisoner had assaulted his jailer, but he was still firmly in jail. And what is fascinating, and I'm talking with the Germans on this issue, is that Scheer and the, the senior German staff realised that they could not beat the British Grand Fleet. That meant they, could, they couldn't open up for invasion, they couldn't starve us out. But the German High Command had already assessed that Britain was the greatest danger in 1916. Already the, the distant blockade had meant a 60% reduction in food within Germany and was, was causing a lot of pain. And the Germans made the decision that the only way that we can beat Britain is by doing an unrestricted U-boat campaign. They embarked on that U-boat campaign uh, and also at the same time as they were about to embark on it sent a telegram, their foreign minister sent a telegram called the Zimmerman Telegram. And this telegram was to Mexico and Mexico and America had always had a bit of a rough patch, there was a rough patch going on at that stage, basically saying, look, if the Americans come in the war against us, can you threaten and maybe invade their borders? We will give you lots of money. We will give you something in the peace deal at the end. And the German calculation was that they would be able to get troops from Russia, do the offensive they had in 1918, and starve Britain to death 
all before the Americans were able to put their full weight in the war. And it was a miscalculation because we intercepted the Zimmerman telegram, it made the Americans furious, the Americans came into the war straight away. We were able to make the blockade then total because part of the reason the blockade wasn't total is because neutral ships, like Americans, were still able occasionally to get through. With the total blockade, it caused complete hardship and mayhem in Germany. By November 1918, there was mutiny and revolution in the streets. High seas fleet mutinied itself. The food stocks and food available was, was tiny. They were using paper for clothes. And there was no fodder for their horses. The, the battle was on the Western Front. The British Army, which by 1918 was very good indeed, couldn't understand why artillery wasn't being moved by the Germans. They had no horses to do it. Our intelligence coverage got better. They had no copper, so they couldn't have copper wires to send messages. It had to all be on clair in the air. And they couldn't build many tanks because they had 60% less machine tools. This really did for them. They were huge, you know, the country broke down, really, because of this blockade. Uh, and, of course, with the Americans beginning to send troops in as well, that was the end of Germany. So I have no doubt that from the British perspective and from actually many countries' perspective, the most important battle of the First World War, the most significant battle, was the Battle of Jutland. And yet the people of this country generally don't really know much about it. And if they do, they think, oh, Jutland, yes, that was that battle we didn't win because it wasn't a tactical victory. And even in the Royal Navy, the Royal Navy did not feel good about it. They had expected another Trafalgar, and they did not feel good about it because they didn't get their Trafalgar. But the strategic results probably had more impact quicker than Trafalgar did. Within two years of that, within a year and a half, of, of, uh, really, of, of that, Germany was falling apart, and it led to victory. The only other battle, I think, in the, in the First War of that sort of importance was the Battle of the Marne, which effectively the French won, but with a little bit of British involvement in 1914 to stop the Schlieff and the swing, um, and, and possibly the Battle of Amiens in 1918. But actually Jutland is, even, is more important than those. If, if we'd lost Jutland, we'd lost the war. Because we won strategically, we won the war. And that was recognised in a sense, if you look at Trafalgar Square, there are two big fountains. How many people in Britain know that one fountain was for Beatty, one fountain was, fountain was for Jellicoe. That's what they were put there for. Most people in Britain aren't aware of it. They're not aware of what the Navy achieved. And throughout the war, not a single soldier lost going across the Channel, bringing all those troops into the country, keeping us fed, starving out Germany. Huge, huge uh, sort of achievement by the Navy. But because there wasn't a, a Trafalgar in the sense of 28 German ships destroyed, people felt bad about it, and it caused dissension in the Royal Navy for at least 20 years. Fights between the Jellicoe School and the Beatty School. So you think really it's because it wasn't a tactical victory? That the, the, was part, part of it is that when Britain looks back at the First World War, um, it was the first war really where the entire middle classes, and I use middle class in a, in a loose term, you know, a huge span of different types of people, had all of their families involved on a grand scale. It was a people's war. And the casualty figures were immense, immense casualty figures, and the poetry and the mud. I mean, sound like Blackadder, don't I? <laughs> all of, all yeah. of that, that rings in the national consciousness. But actually, Battle of the Somme, the Battle of Passchendaele, they didn't do anything in the way Jutland did. Jutland was a crucial and key victory, uh, strategic victory, absolutely crucial. And if we'd lost it, that would have been it. These other battles were grinding battles of attrition. The Battle of Verdun, where the Germans wanted to grind down the French army, it achieved a certain amount, but it wasn't going to win them the war. It wasn't going to win them the war. And so I think Jutland has that, has that place. 
and yet it's just not really seen or known about. Do you have much of an idea of what it was like for the people who actually fought at Jutland? Because many of them wouldn't have been in a battle of that nature before. No, I, and it was very violent um, for the ships that were involved. I mean, we lost three battle cruisers. We lost the Indefatigable, we lost the Queen Mary, and we lost the Invincible. Um, you know, these are huge ships and lost nearly every single man on them. We had things called armoured cruisers. There was the uh, Warrior and the Defence, and they were our Botnet squadron, General uh, Admiral Al Botnet squadron. Two of those were completely lost with their entire crew. The Warrior was very badly damaged, and she later sank being towed back to UK by the Engadine, which was a seaplane carrier because she did launch seaplanes, uh, Engadine. That was the first time ever in a battle at sea, a ship carrying aircraft launched them to have a look at the enemy, which is quite a, a thing. And so some of these battles were very, very vicious. The shark with Loftus Evans was the captain, surrounded by German ships, you know, with taking hit after hit. He lost part of his leg. He got a sailor to nail his flag back up again and kept firing, and then finally was sunk by a torpedo. And he was killed, many of his men were killed, his body was washed up, as lots of bodies were on the Swedish coast or the Danish coast days later. He got a Victoria Cross, partly because the Germans who were driving the ships around him recommended him for it. But the other Victoria Crosses, I mentioned Major Harvey, there was also um, Boy Cornwall, who was manning a six-inch gun on board the Chester, which is a cruiser. Everyone around him was killed, and he stayed at his station manning that gun. You know, these, these actions were very violent, high explosive cell. We didn't really understand blast, and so people would seem to be all right, and then their faces would all puff up, and then they'd die later. And that's why anti-flash gear was introduced uh, in, the, in the Navy, to stop that flash causing that damage to you. Yes, extremely violent, but they were buoyed up. They wanted a battle. The, the Navy wanted a battle. If you imagine, this was May, 31st of May 1916. We'd been at war for two years almost, almost two years by then, not quite. But, and the Navy hadn't had its major battle. They, everyone expected a major battle. They wanted to be out there. They wanted to be there for the tag, the day, and they were buoyed up by that. But the actual violence when these things happened was huge. And, um, you know, unpleasant casualties. But I think they were very bullish, very bullish. Lots of, you know, they'd cheer as a ship went by and this sort of thing. They were, they were, they were quite bullish about it all. And indeed, as were the Germans. The Germans wanted to get at things as well. But a lot of lessons learned. Later, for example, we discovered that a lot of the British shells from the battleships, they didn't pierce the German armour before exploding. So the Grand Fleet, when uh, Scheer came and hit the T of the Grand Fleet, got lots and lots of hits. Their gunnery was far better than the battlecruisers' gunnery. Far, far better. And they got lots of hits on the German ship. Hardly any of them penetrated through the main armour into their vitals. If they had, it would have been a very different thing. So we learnt that lesson. We learnt lessons about signalling, which was not good. There's no doubt the flag lieutenant, uh, Beatty's flag lieutenant, was not good. So Beatty's control of the battle, his bit of the battle, was, wasn't clever. He wasn't tactically that sound. Very brave, courageous, charismatic. When he took over the Grand Fleet, because Jellicoe moved at the end of, uh, end of that year, when he became uh, First Sea Lord, Beatty became much more cautious, because suddenly, of course, he had that responsibility, but he had no opportunity because the Germans only came out again in 1916 very briefly and rushed back in, and again in, uh, I think it was 1917, they went up up towards uh, the Norwegian convoys and then rushed back in, and then the next time they were told to go to see they mutinied. Yeah, so they'd been devastated, really. And so all this nonsense that this was a German victory is a nonsense, I'm afraid, although they did perform extremely well. Their rangefinders were good, their shells were good, they were very well armoured, so there were lots of things we had to learn. And do you feel you get an additional perspective on this battle from your own naval experience that perhaps other historians wouldn't do? 
I think I understand better things like the, the complete confusion about making a decision about what decision you're going to take. I mean, the North Sea is really difficult. You think there are strong tides. It's always very misty and murky. You hardly ever get really clear days. You do occasionally, but hardly ever. And the ships were spewing out immense amounts of smoke. I mean, only a few of them had become oil-fired, so most of them were coal-fired. Great billowing clouds of smoke. When you fired a broadside, you just had these black clouds, and this would all drift around. So visibility was terrible. You couldn't get a position from, well, the night before from the stars, because you were not able to get a horizon. Trying to get a sun sight was very difficult again because of the visibility. And because of these tides and movements, there were no buoys, all the lights had gone. You were zigzagging to avoid submarines. You know, I understand from having been there zigzagging, doing this, with not, and occasionally with everything turned off because you don't want people to find you. You know, knowing exactly where you are, making the right decision about what, what action to take. Uh, just in war games even, and I've been in a proper war as well, but in war games, you know, for against the Americans, I remember as the battle group commander, fighting against an American battle group where actually we won and sank the Enterprise, which was rather gratifying. But when to make, when to suddenly switch on things, when to make your move, where exactly were they? These decisions are really difficult, really. And I, and I can see that and feel the pulsating of the ship and the noise and, you know, they'd have been up on these open bridges with them thundering along. You know, it, it, I, I certainly feel all of that and that difficulty. And I think I understand that probably better than someone who hasn't been there you know, having to make a decision about it. And when your ship's being hit by shells or bombs, mine was being hit by bombs, you know, what that means, what it means in terms of your sailors. So I do think I do understand it, yes. Do you feel you have an extra sympathy for the commanders in, in the situation they were in? I do, yes, absolutely, because it is so difficult. It is so difficult. And I think Jellicoe did extremely well. I, I always think to myself, would I have turned towards on that second time? And it's a very difficult one, because if you think to yourself... Yes, I would, because I'd have got them. You know, you have got a little bit of hindsight. And also, of course, if you got it wrong and you lost too many ships, you'd have lost the war. Wasn't it better not to do that? Because if you didn't do it, you were still going to win strategically and you would win the war. And one has to sort of think that's probably right. But I still think Nelson probably would have turned towards. And it would then have been a tactical victory as well as a strategic victory. But yes, I mean, if... If he had managed to destroy the German fleet, that would have been another Trafalgar, wouldn't it? It would have been, it would have been like that. Obviously, now we've come to the, the centenary almost of Jutland. How do you think we should mark this occasion? And do you believe, feel there's a danger it's going to be overshadowed by the Somme centenary? Uh, it seems that the government have taken it seriously. There's a big event up at Scarpa Flow, which was the Grand Fleet base. I think something's happening in the North Sea. I know there are events taking place in the in the naval division towns, the naval, you know, the, so the ports, uh, Chatham... Uh, Portsmouth uh, and Devonport. So there are events going on there. Uh, there are a number of programmes going out. The BBC are doing uh, the one on Radio 4 that I'm doing. Uh, there's also one, I think it's Dan Snow, which is going out on the television. So I think probably it is being covered, but I think it is almost inevitable that the Somme, where we lost so many ordinary men on that first day and then thereafter all the time, the, the incredible bravery, which went on day after day after day for a very long time, all of the mud, the ability to take pictures much more easily. It's very difficult to take pictures of battles at sea. So the coverage is better. There's the Somme film that was made, I think in the First World War after the battle, and that's showing all over the place. There's no such thing as a Jutland film. So in, to an extent, I think the Somme will overshadow it because it impacted on every single family in Britain. In the naval family, Jutland impacted. So, for example, Holbrook School, 
which was the Royal Hospital School at Greenwich, over 100 of its boys died on the day of the Battle of Jutland. And in the base ports, with that over 6,000 men, you know, a thousand, over 1,000 men going each, each of the battle cruisers exploded. You know, that was impacting on all those families and all those ports. So within the naval family, Jutland did have a huge impact, but it wasn't over the whole nation in the way the Somme was over the whole nation. And some of these regiments, you know, from a local area, it decimated all, all the young men of a, an area. Went. So I think in that sense, it will get more. But the Somme was not a crucial battle in the way the Jutland was. It just wasn't. Jutland was the most important battle, I believe, in the First World War for Britain. If we had lost it, we would have lost the war, without a doubt, and the Allies would have lost the war. And because we had a strategic victory there, Germany was inevitably going to lose the war. And it happened quite quickly because of the unrestricted U-boat campaign, which they didn't win with us because we started convoy systems late. You know, they almost got there, they almost got there. And because uh, we, they were collapsing as a nation because the blockade was so tight. Uh, and that's all because Jutland was a strategic victory. That was Admiral Lord West. His documentary, entitled Jutland, The Battle That Won the War, is due to air on BBC Radio 4 this Sunday, the 22nd of May, at 1.30pm. And keep an eye on your TV schedules too, as BBC Television will also be marking this anniversary over the next fortnight. And you can read an article on the Battle of Jutland by historian Nick Hewitt in the May edition of BBC History magazine, which is now off sale in the UK, but is still available as a back issue and on many of our digital formats. Meanwhile, our June edition has just been published. It's our 200th issue, and to mark the occasion, we've produced a bumper edition with a special feature where leading historians each have 200 words to answer one of the big questions in history. Plus, there are also articles on Operation Barbarossa, the private lives of the Tudors, Roman Britain, and the medieval civil war, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. The discovery of an unexploded Second World War bomb caused disruption in Bath earlier this week. It was found on the site of a former school last Friday, leading to the evacuation of hundreds of homes in the surrounding area. After being woken in the night, residents within a 300-metre exclusion zone were asked to leave their homes for more than 24 hours while the bomb was removed by the army. It was later transported to Tall Quarry to be detonated in a controlled explosion. The bomb, which weighed 500 pounds, is thought to date from the 1942 Bath Blitz, in which hundreds of buildings were damaged and more than 400 civilians killed. 
The attack was part of Germany's so-called Baidecker raids, which targeted sites of cultural and historical importance, rather than those of military significance. In other news, artefacts from two lost cities of ancient Egypt are to go on display at the British Museum in London this week, after being buried underwater for more than a thousand years. The major new exhibition, Sunken Cities, Egypt's Lost Worlds, contains around 250 objects recently excavated from the Mediterranean Sea using groundbreaking technology. The artefacts, which include sacred statues, ritual objects and gold jewellery, come from two ancient Egyptian cities, Thonis Heraklion, a commercial hub, and Canopus, a centre for the worship of Egyptian gods. Until their discovery in the 1990s, the two cities had lain submerged under the sea since the 8th century AD. The exhibition opens this week and runs until the 27th of November. Meanwhile, a lock of hair from former US President Thomas Jefferson has been sold at auction for nearly $7,000. Physician Dr. Robley Dunglison took the hair from Jefferson's head when the president died in July 1826. The lock consists of only 14 strands of hair, meaning that each individual strand achieved a price tag of just under $500. This was the first time Jefferson's lock of hair had been put up for sale, and it was sold for double the expected price. Our second interview this week is with Susanna Lipscomb, a historian based at New College of the Humanities. Susanna is the presenter of a new BBC4 documentary entitled Hidden Killers of the Post-War Home, which reveals some of the surprising dangers accompanying the new consumer products that have arrived over the past few decades. She spoke to our acting deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Suzanne, Hidden Killers of the Post-War Home is your latest in the Hidden Sillers programmes. Previous ones have included the Tudor, Victorian and Edwardian periods. Um, This one, though, focuses on the 1950s. So tell me a little bit about what you'll be covering in it. Yes, well, we're bringing it up to date almost. I mean, this is a period in which many of us um, have actually lived or at least are familiar with the sort of the home of the 50s. You know, it might be the home of our parents or grandparents. And in it, we're covering a host of um, killers that are things that we're quite familiar with um, and in which, and in actually some cases, the dangers persist today. So as it gets closer to home, this series gets ever more terrifying um, and salutary, hopefully. In some ways, this is sort of health and safety hidden under um, a deep historical framework. I've seen a a preview of the show and you walk in and you say that the room reminds you of your grandparents' home. And as the camera pans around, I can see things that I have seen, you know, little objects, um, decoration, little ornaments and so forth. And it is so familiar. Um, I mean, that obviously has a particular power. Yes, I mean, many of us live in Victorian homes, so some of that was familiar to people. But in terms of the actual decor, um, although the house we're in is a particularly lovely example of 1950s living, um, it much of it is is familiar and still desirable. In fact, I'd say quite a lot of the design, the look of the 50s, the kind of soft modernism of the interior is actually coming back into fashion. Um, but it, and it, so, it, so it very much is familiar. And whilst some of the problems we've eradicated, many of them, there the definitely are some things that one, will, one would do having watched this 
program, I think, you know, um, uh, I, as a result of having made it, have started washing my hands much more frequently. So that's a particular killer in the 50s because actually there's a real problem after the war, um, post the rationing, so after 1954, there's a sudden expansion in terms of um, desire to eat meat. People are sort of want to get back to the lifestyle they had before. Um, and particularly uh, uh, because actually the number of livestock and things can't cater for the need, there's a real expansion in, in chicken farming. And to cut a long story short, although I'll happily tell you it in blow by blow, that there is a great expansion of things like salmonella. And these are being introduced into the house through factory farm chicken. And if you don't wash your hands, you transfer the potential bacteria in these all over the place. Yeah. So it's really intensive farming practices that are changing the way uh, our food is produced and creating a, a new danger that never really existed before. Exactly. And it's quite astonishing if you know the figures. So it's, it goes, the chicken production goes up from 5 million chickens a year in 1954 to 75 million in 1959. That's quite amazing, isn't it? And so um, I guess people were eating much more processed food as well. That's right. So some of this is a sense of, um, you know, the hangover of the war, but a lot of it also is desirable. So there's, uh, you know, there's a sense of um, this being the sort of convenience food of the time. And there's a real emphasis on the time of, on um, say, liberating the, the woman from her drudgery, although, of course, actually women are working far more. But this, that's the rhetoric. So the hot point calls one of its washing machine, you know, the liberator. There's this sense that actually w women are having opportunities uh, for freedom. And so processed food becomes associated with that. So, um, are many of these new items in the home that are supposed to be labour-saving, were these uh, presenting more of a danger to, to women who presumably at that time were, were the main users of these new technologies? Yes. So, well, there are two types of um, devices that are, are become problematic in this, this period. One is absolutely the sort of labour-saving devices in the kitchen. And we've looked at electricity before, actually, in the, the, the hidden killers looking at the Edwardian home. But it, it's, you know, obviously still around ever more uh, present and uh, more houses are, you know, wired for lighting, etc., and it's the new things like the electric irons or the kettle that will um, the pop the plug will pop out of the wall when it's boiled and obviously plugs sockets are often next to your sink so there's a, there's a great danger there so there's lots of de there's sort of continuing dangers about electricity um, that aren't known or um, aren't factored in in the in the planning of these things. Yes, I mean, there's so many regulations now. If you ever have any building work done in your home, you know, the electrician will say, well, you can't put that here or you've got to do that or whatever. And presumably this is building on the experiences that people have had in the past that we now hopefully do things in a slightly safer way. That's right, exactly. And so that's the other area is um, the sort of DIY because uh, and lots of amateur electrics are done. Um, this is the real kind of boom area of, D of DIY, the period in which you start having Dulux selling to the, the general public, Black & Decker start selling to the public. Um, there's the, the Practical Householder magazine goes on sale. You've got Barry Bucknell on TV making these programs, teaching you how to cover up your beautiful Victorian doors to make them look like, you know, know 1950s plain look um and so there's a lot of diy going on um 
people buying their own homes, of course, uh, for the first time. And as a result of that, lots of things like amateur electrics, um, all sorts of uh, devices, you know, saws and things like this that aren't don't have the safety mechanisms that they do today. Now, one of the things I thought was interesting um, is the influence of the Second World War, um, and in particular on its you know, new innovations on the war, on the technologies of 1950s homes. Yes, well, of course, as a result of the war, there are so many um, new developments. War does drive technology. Um, so, uh, of course, there are all sorts of things that are being introduced into the home as a product of that. Um, and actually, also, there are some you know, less desirable things as well, because there's a sense that, uh, say, the children of the age want to be like their soldier farmers. And so, want, you know, one of the things that we get is a kind of chemistry sets, which in, in America, they even have uranium in, uh, you know, which obviously is a direct, direct response to the war. So there are, um, there, there are ways in which, I, both in terms of devices, which uh, are supposed to, you know, saved uh, time um, but also in in kind of even the toys that are introduced into the house many of the technologies of the war are affecting life after that point. Now you researched and you wrote the program um, how do you go about researching something like this? Um, I mean I was just watching a preview and there's an amazing set of 1950s and 60s objects and interiors. Well the objects and the interiors is done by somebody else I should hastily confess that there's a researcher who finds the amazing location um, and many of the objects. My job as the historian really is to make sure that I'm learned in the secondary literature and there is, and um, so there's a book, I should immediately uh, name some of those people who have done such brilliant work on this, you know, think of people like Peter Hennessy um, or David Kiniston um, among others who've written lots about the, the 1950s but then also to really come to terms with much of the newspaper material of the period or um, the diaries and letters. There's all sorts of primary sources one can go to as well. I mean, and presumably there's also a lot more archive material now than um, some of the earlier periods um, of your Hidden Killers uh, series. Yes, and one of the wonderful things about this is that we had a lot of archive footage, which, of course, you generally don't get if you're making programmes about earlier periods. So there's lots of lovely archive footage in this one as well. Um, so there's lots to draw on. Yeah, that sort of thing really brings it alive, doesn't it? Um, what is it about these series that you think makes them so fascinating to people? Because they've been very popular. Yes, I mean, I think some of it is that we combine science and history. So there's, and it's a social history that's really about how people lived, but also takes us into scientific areas. And, um, you know, we can have a, I can have a genuine sort of everyman feel when I go and invite, interview scientists because I genuinely don't know anything about it. Um, so <laughs> about the science of the thing. So uh, getting them to explain it to me, I think, means that they put it in terms that, as a layman, I can understand and therefore other people can understand. Um, and I think also it is just th that it talks to our place of safety, our refuge, the home. And um, there's, a, there's a sort of thrill, I, you know, disturbing as that might be, in the dangers that our perfectly um, calm, you know, innocuous looking house introduced to our lives. Indeed. And do you think there's something about the the power of objects themselves to speak to us, you know, the things that you look at, the things that we use daily or that people used in a daily way in the past. 
Absolutely. So there's that tangibility of the past and the sense that, um, the, you know, that something can be transformed from your everyday object into something with a history. I think that's absolutely true. And also, I, I actually do think people t- tune in a lot for, we do have we tend to have an amazing variety of um, expert contributors, um, many of whom are just completely compelling to watch. Nathan Goss, for example, I think has his own fan club. Um, and, um, you know, it, because it, because we choose people who really know their stuff. And so that makes a big difference. Um, and we have a lot of women on it as well. We have a, we're, we're pretty much an all-female production team and we tend to have a lot of female expert contributors. In fact, with this one, we were thinking, we must make sure we have some men. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a particular favourite part or perhaps something that, that moved you at the time or that has stayed with you? Well, can I tell you about two? Mm-hmm, um, please. So we... One extraordinary thing is that chemistry sets um, become very fashionable among children at this time, uh, boys particularly, of course, and uh, they are full of all sorts of extraordinary uh, ingredients that you wouldn't dare to put into the hands of children today. Um, And um, we did this experiment with... um, glycerol and potassium permanganate which caused an explosion we used such a tiny amount of it as well and it sent up this huge flame and i found this completely astonishing that the ingredients for this would have been in a set um in bedrooms um so i i wonder if many of the listeners had experienced i i certainly used a chemistry set as a child and i wonder if anyone else did so and caused a bit of an explosion that was entirely possible the other one is um less um amusing um we uh we were looking at um, the introduction of gas boilers and heaters into bathrooms, which seemed amazing at the time. Bathrooms were introduced into most houses in the 50s if they weren't there already. It's an amazing, you know, in 1950, half of all homes don't have a bathroom in the house and they're being introduced. And so you've got this lovely, luxurious room where you can have hot water and um, soak yourself in the bath and and one of the real dangers of this period is that these gas boilers are being put in bathrooms. And if you have incomplete burning of fossil fuels, it often produces gases that go back into the room, chiefly among them carbon monoxide. And um, carbon monoxide is colourless and tasteless. Um, it's, you know, you, you can't smell it. It's odourless. It's invisible. And so it's completely silent and completely deadly. And... Um, that was a real danger in the period and remains so today. So one of my um, one of my school friends very sadly died a few years back as a result of carbon monoxide poisoning. And so whilst there are restrictions today against um, gas boilers and heaters in, in bathrooms, there are all sorts of other ways in which this can be a threat. In the, the UK, we're better at this than elsewhere, but it's something that... It, I hope, as a result of seeing this, people become more aware of. Do you think it's easier for people to relate to uh, social history rather than any other kind of history? It depends on the person. I mean, people do very much enjoy the big um, sort of high-level story of politics um, and, uh, you know, religion. And, 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 and you know, in this period, of course, this is a, so much is happening in terms of um, political changes. But the... But I think with social history, it, it, it allows, it, it plays at that, you know, fascinating intersection of the past about people being just like us and being entirely different and their worlds being entirely different. And so the foreignness of the past combines with the thrill of the, the familiar. And so I think, 
that's why social history is so appealing to us. Yeah, I think there's a kind of synergy there, isn't there, that you, you possibly don't get from other kinds of history. It's, it is that ability to put yourself back in the past. Exactly. We can all imagine what it might have been like to, to, to live in this home or to, to operate, you know, to eat this food, to operate in these different ways. And I think that's, that it's really helpful mentally when you can make that leap. If someone's looking back 30 years on, um, what sort of things in our in our homes today do we need to worry about? Well, uh, it's a difficult question to answer, of course, because immediately one has the danger of being slanderous. Um, it just feels that we don't know what the dangers are. I mean, one thing I do want to pick up, though, uh, we do... I do try very much not to make this a kind of Whiggish story of progress. I think one of the interesting things about this period and the periods we've we've chosen to look at are they've been periods of developments in science and technology where things look like they're moving forwards, but actually what we're saying is it's two steps forward and one step back. So the the dangers are the are the um, the uh, the sort of thing that's um, retarding progress, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's always the very new technologies that seem to present the dangers. Um, although we like to think, you know, nowadays that testing is perhaps more rigorous or, uh, you know, more on the agenda than it used to be in the past. I think it is. And actually, we do have the 1950s to thank for that in many ways. And the consumer power that emerges from the 50s is crucial. You know, which magazine is founded in 1957? There's there's a sense of the need to test consumer products as a result of many of the dangers that emerge in that period. So I'm sure there is progress in that regard. Yeah. Now, besides being a writer, you're a historian, an academic um, and a broadcaster, of course. In the wider sense, how important do you think it is to engage the public in history? Well, I suppose my life testifies to the fact that I think it's crucial. So there's um, in the period um, that I have published about in the 16th century, there's very much a a discussion between um, those who are... uh, among the humanists who think you should lead a contemplative life. So, you know, essentially be in one's um, ivory tower and consider the world. And those who think one should have an active life and um, be be involved in the affairs of the world. And, and Thomas More um, concludes that one should must not wrap up one's talent in a napkin. Or, or to put it in a sort of more recent way, G.M. Trevelyan once said that if historians neglect to educate the public, if they fail to interest it intelligently in the past, then all their historical learning is useless, except insofar as it educates themselves. So it, I think there is a call from history itself to um, to be engaged as scholars in the dissemination of that practice and not to cede that territory to those who are less acquainted with the archives. That was Susanna Lipscomb. Hidden Killers of the Post-War Home airs next Wednesday, the 25th of May, at 8pm on BBC4. OK, so that's almost it for this week, but do listen in next time when Susanna Lipscomb will be rejoining us as part of a fascinating discussion we held with four leading historians about the state of history book publishing. Do listen in for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. 
For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. 